Well, I want to add what I hope is not the first voice you've heard this morning saying, good morning, we are delighted that you're here as we continue to worship together, to be a community of faith that declares the excellencies of our God and Savior. We've done so in song and in worship, and we've done so in a little bit of a liturgical observation of things that are true. And now we want to continue that spirit of worship by opening up and walking through God's Word. This is how the church has gathered together to worship for thousands of years. Now, this morning, because it's a little bit of a, of a transition from our last sermon series through the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, we're starting a new sermon series. It's going to take us, well, several months, Lord willing, to walk through and to complete, and we're not going to hurry. And so to do so, even though this is a strange holiday weekend and all of the things, I want to talk about the idea, the concept, the reality of sorrow. I know it's not exactly a pick-me-up topic, I get that, but the Bible deals with it extensively. It appears in our text over and over and over again. The term sorrow in Scripture is this deep emotional concept. In Hebrew, it's yagon. In Greek, it is lupe. It has this idea of being immersed in grief, of, of having the volume on life turned down, of, of walking through the narrative of your existence, and the soundtrack is all minor key. You ever been there? Of course you have. And so have I. And if you're not, right now, well, praise God, because it's coming. All of us get the opportunity to deal with and walk through and experience sorrow. Well, why is that? Where does sorrow come from? Well, there's actually a deep biblical truth about the notion of sorrow. See, fundamentally, we as a species, net of the fall in Genesis 3 are no longer content with God. That's the anthropological reality. We are fundamentally, fundamentally not content with God, and so we grasp for fulfillment in every other area, and as a result, evil occurs. And the byproduct of evil is sorrow. When things don't go according to plan, finances, relationships, health, whatever it is, it's because evil is rampant in the world. Why does evil propagate? Because people are not content with God. Now, it might seem like that's just something that we have to deal with all by ourselves, but it isn't. This morning, I want to talk about a man of sorrows. Some 750 years before the first coming of Christ, the prophet Isaiah describes the ministry and the mindset of the Messiah, and he describes the coming Christ like this. It's a familiar passage. He says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their, hid their faces, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We are gathered together this morning not because we simply want to go to heaven one day when we die. That isn't it. We are gathered together this morning because God himself stepped out of heaven, the sendable self of the Godhead Trinity, Jesus, stepped out of heaven to bear our sorrows and to become our sin and to die. God is well acquainted with our circumstances because he entered directly into them. And so our big idea this morning as we kick off this new sermon series goes very simply like this. Jesus knows your sorrows. He knows. 
may not seem like it, may not feel like it, may not appear like it, may not sound like it. Jesus knows your sorrows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We sort of know, yeah, God is sovereign. He knows a lot of stuff. He's probably aware. No, no, no. I mean, Jesus knows your specific and personal sorrows. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He is for you. Now, that's going to springboard us into an entire sermon series that we're going to study through the book of 1 Corinthians. And our working theme for the book of 1 Corinthians, it's rather lengthy, is imperfect church, perfect gospel. Now, I like that because I happen to be a part of an imperfect church and I cling to a perfect gospel. There's no room, no need for improvement in the gospel. That's what's going on in the book of 1 Corinthians. But as you know, as we study through a book of scripture at Bethel and all five of our campuses, our tendency, our, our pattern is to give and supply as much context as we possibly can. There is no meaning apart from context. And so for that, we're going to try to understand exactly what did it mean, this book of 1 Corinthians, to those people there and then. What did it mean to them there and then? What was Paul trying to get across? And for that, we have to start this morning, sort of a soft launch into 1 Corinthians. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 18. This is sort of the, uh, the backstory. This is, this is the setting before we get into the scene, Lord willing, next Sunday when we begin 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is going to be the setting is the book of Acts chapter 18. Now, super quick survey, just so we're all remembering. Your Bible is not merely a collection of stories or words or narratives to help you feel better, to give you a boost or a nudge from time to time. The Bible is the story of God working on the earth to redeem a species who has rejected him. Hit that again. The Bible is the story of God on the earth working fast and furiously, nonstop, tirelessly to redeem a species that has rejected him. And so we have all these things in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, where God says, I'm going to reach the whole world with a new kingdom of priests, a new special race of people, a new nation, Israel, and they're going to be my light. They're going to express my righteousness to all of the world. We studied that for four weeks in the book of Jonah and how Jonah as a person and Israel as a nation failed. And that whole narrative continues all the way through the end of the book of Malachi, the final word of which is destruction. Then God is silent for 400 years, does not speak through a prophet. Finally, we're given four gospel narratives. You should know those exist and appear in your New Testament. They are Old Testament books. They are Old Testament books showing this is the culmination, the climax, and the conclusion of God's working through the nation of Israel. Their Messiah has come. Will she receive him? No. This man of sorrows is stripped naked, beaten, humiliated, shamed, hanged on a cross to die. Becoming all of their sorrows, which then takes us into the book of Acts, which is why it exists where it does in our canon. The book of Acts is this slow motion overlap of the transition of the age of God's focus with Israel and the beginnings of the age of the church. And there's a little bit of a strange overlap as the ages transition. You might think of Acts as the book of Joshua. 
in the Old Testament where there's a new thing happening and it begins to take shape and it expands and it increases exponentially. And then you have the epistles that is sort of like the, the manual for how do these new people, how does this new race of kingdom priests, how do they operate? So the epistles of which 1 Corinthians is one, is kind of like the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. Do you see what God's doing? He's trying to reach and redeem an entire population on the planet. And the Bible is that story. Now we need to know that. So we, here we are in the book of 1 Corinthians, but we're going to start in the book of Acts. By the time we get into the book of Acts in chapter 18, the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's in Corinth. I think we've got a map, perhaps, of Corinth. He is sitting in Corinth, which is 50 miles west of Athens. Now, there's a lot going on with the city of Corinth. Perhaps you've heard of it. Corinth was about 20 times the size of Athens. Corinth had two seaports, one on the east for the Adriatic, one on, or on the west for the Adriatic, one on the east for the Aegean. It was a seaport full of sailors. There were 10,000 or at least several thousand sacred cultic prostitutes, priestesses of Aphrodite in Corinth. It was full of sailors. And then as now, that leads to kind of a debauched kind of a place. Paul had started his missionary work. You may remember earlier in the book of Acts in his first missionary journey, he goes to Cyprus. And there's sort of this triumphal entry. Paul Everywhere he walks, there's like a drumbeat, and people are just falling over, getting converted left and right. He smacks down a magician. He converts Sergius Paulus, one of the proconsuls on the island of Cyprus, and he's crushing. And everywhere he goes, people are just coming to faith. But now, as he comes into Corinth on his second missionary journey, he's barely on fumes. You might remember, he starts his second missionary journey. He goes through what is today Turkey in the areas of Galatia, and he's trying to continue to minister in that part of the world. The Spirit of God says no. So he says, fine, I'll go up north. The Spirit of Jesus says no. He has a vision of a man from Macedonia. That's Greece. He says, please, come over here. Give us the gospel. Paul does. He goes over, and he starts the first church in Western civilization in Philippi. He gets beaten up. He has to leave Philippi. He goes through two towns. doesn't stop. We don't know why. He goes all the way through to Berea. He goes to Thessalonica. Finally, he leaves Thessalonica, and he goes down to Athens, and he's all alone, and he preaches at Mars Hill or the Areopagus, and then he goes from Athens all the way 50 miles to the west, and he goes to Corinth, and he's by himself, and he's utterly wasted. He's totally gassed. He's on fumes. When he was in Philippi, it was all about faith. When he was in Thessalonica and Berea, it was all about exposition. When he was in Athens, it was all about his intellect. But now he's going to come into Corinth, and God's going to use a different aspect of Paul, one that none of us wants to use, his weakness, his brokenness, his loneliness, his vulnerability, and his discouragement. How do we know that? Well, real quickly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, And I was with you in weakness, and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's saying, I came in barely functioning and God was going to use it. Now that's hard to hear sometime because Paul was discouraged. And the enemy's greatest weapon against you is discouragement because it works, I will attest. One of the flamingest arrows he has to shoot against you is discouragement because it always lands. Now, with all of that said as a backdrop, Acts chapter 18, 
Paul on his second missionary journey, he's in Corinth. You saw where it's located on the map. Luke writes, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. After this, after all this stuff, he gets beaten up in Philippi. There's a riot in Thessalonica. He has to get run out of there. He has to argue in Athens. They tell him he's an idiot. He finally comes into Corinth. He's all alone for several months after all of these things. And in verse two, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Pontus is one of the regions of northern Turkey. It's uh, in the north central part of what is today Turkey. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. It's amazing. We don't know this for sure. The text never tells us explicitly, but we believe that Priscilla and Aquila were already believers before they are introduced to Paul. How? We don't know exactly. Church history believed that they were already believers because we get no record of their baptism in Corinth. When we start 1 Corinthians next week, we'll have a record of some of the early leaders of the church at Corinth and how Paul baptizes them personally. They are not mentioned, which has led many people to believe that Priscilla and Aquila may have been at Jerusalem for Pentecost when that all happened, and they became believers and went back to Rome. But in AD 49, Emperor Claudius kicks all of the Jews out of Rome. This is historical fact. And a historian named Suetonius records that the, the tumult, the kerfuffle, was because the Jews were arguing about someone named Christus which we believe was there is probably some argument in Rome between the Jews and Christians about the Christus, which we would know as the Christ. That's going to be important. So they find themselves in Corinth. It's not where they want to be. It's not where Paul wants to be. And yet here they are. And likely they would have heard of the apostle Paul and all of his ministry, all of his mission, all of his success, all of his apostleship. And wow, and they were probably expecting Braveheart to walk in. They're probably expecting some NFL linebacker to walk in. And then they see Paul. And they're like, oh, we expected more. Remember, we have one recorded uh, description of the Apostle Paul. He was short, he was bow-legged, he was bald-headed, he had unibrow, a big nose, and he had oozy eyes. <laughs> Not exactly the mall glamour shot you're looking for for an apostle. They would have thought he would have been Captain Awesome. He looked like anything but. I remember the first time I got to meet one of my heroes in the faith, Professor Howard Hendricks. Prof. Hendricks was just a titan in my eyes and in my mind. And I met him for the first time, and he looked slightly like a bleached raisin with an eye patch. <laughs> he was stooped, he was hunched, he couldn't carry his own briefcase. I met him, and he said, hey, you, carry this to my car. I said, yes, yes, and I, I, he wasn't nearly as great and grand as I had imagined, except that he was in his teaching ministry. When he died a few years ago at his funeral, his three kids each got up and spoke about the daily battle their dad faced with depression and discouragement and futility. This is the same thing that Paul comes into Corinth. He's utterly beaten. He's out of options. And yet, providentially, God provides these two people who weren't expecting Paul, and he sovereignly intersects their paths. It's an absolutely amazing thing. Paul's beginning to wonder, is this for is this really for any good? Is this really good at all? I've had to leave this new church in Philippi in the hands of Lydia, a fashionista, a demon-possessed slave girl, a suicidal civil servant, the Roman jailer. 
And, and then I had to go to Thessalonica. I left the church there in the hands of a guy named Jason. Never trust a guy named Jason. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. He's wondering, is the church even going to make it? Is it going to take off? What's going to happen? And so there he sits in Corinth on fumes. And he goes to the house of Priscilla and Aquila. It says, verse three, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, let me catch you up real fast. The apostle Paul, that's not his birth name. He was Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus in Cilicia, which is in southeastern Turkey. He goes to Jerusalem, lives with his sister, is tutored by one of the great rabbis of the day. He's on the Sanhedrin. But in that time when he was growing up, he learned how to make tents in his father's business. He has a radical conversion experience in Acts chapter 9 where Jesus knocks him off his horse and calls him to ministry. Then after that experience, he goes into the deserts of Arabia for three years where Jesus instructs him directly. And then Paul goes back to Cilicia and works for his daddy for at least another 11 to 14 years in obscurity until finally Barnabas goes and gets him, takes him to Jerusalem for the council there in Acts chapter 15. So Paul's been pretty honing his craft of tent making. Here he is in Corinth, and he just so happens to find two other Jews who know how to do tent making. Now, this is not making tents that you go camping with. This is, this is industrial kind of stuff that you would make buildings where manufacturing and processes could take place. But I want you to hear and understand what's going on. Paul's still a Jew, but he's a Christian. But he's a Jew, but he's a Christian. And to work with tent making, you have to, in Corinth, work with leather with animal skins. The Jews, when they made tents, they used exclusively animal hair, but you can't do that in Corinth. In Corinth, they're working with leather. Some of you old timers, you know what I'm talking about. It's true, it really did exist. Do you remember Ricardo Matoban in the finest Corinthian leather? Some of you who were born like this century are going, what is that? That's a 1975 Chrysler Cordoba, and it was outfitted with Corinthian leather. Which everyone said, there's no such thing as Corinthian leather. Ha! Turns out, there is! And the Apostle Paul was making it. We can move on. That was just for you old people to wake you back up. All right. <laughs> Paul is sitting in Corinth, and he's biding his time, thinking, what am I doing? This is not the story I had written for myself. This is not the narrative I had penned. Life's not going according to my direction. And he was sorrowful. Have you ever been there? I sure have. Well, he continues on. And he reasoned, verse 4, in the synagogue every Sabbath on the Saturday, he would put down his working tools, work all Sunday through Friday, and then on Saturday he would reason, he would make a logical defense. I love this. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Apparently some of these Gentiles began to come to the synagogue as well. And listen, verse five, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, you remember? They were up in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and probably Dr. Luke stayed in Berea with Silas. They finally come and meet Paul in Corinth. It's been three months, and he's been agonizing and wondering what has become of those churches that we planted up there. They wait, he waits three months. Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, that word occupied, it's he's enveloped, he's constrained, he's totally sandwiched in with the word of God. Now that's a good job description. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, and here's the key, the Christ was Jesus. Telling his fellow countrymen in 
in Corinth who were Jews, the Christ was Jesus. They did not want to hear this. Despite passages like Isaiah that said the servant, the Messiah, the Son of God must suffer, they said, no, we reject that. That's not the kind of Messiah I want. I want a Messiah powerful and plenty. And Paul would say, but what about this in Isaiah? What about this in Deuteronomy? What about this in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? And they would say, no, that can't be talking about Messiah. And Paul would say, I didn't see it either, but he's opened my eyes. It's him. I've seen him. I know him. He's amazing. And he's alive. And they reject him. They will not hear that this Messiah is Jesus. And when they, verse six, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now there's a lot there and they would have known exactly what he was doing. Previously, he would go and reason in the synagogues and say, hey, this is the Messiah. We think he's come. They go, well, that's interesting. Come back and tell us again. And they'd say, interesting. Tell us you think Messiah's actually come. We've missed it because we're over here in Lystra or Iconium or Derby or wherever. Yes, Messiah has come. And not only that, he's here for the Gentiles. And then they would throw rocks at him. This time, he's just going right at it because he's lost a lot of pretense, a lot of his polish. He's saying, the Christ is Jesus. And they reject, and he spends no more time. He shakes the dust off of his clothes. This is a, an Old Testament rabbinic method to say, I am not responsible for you. And then he quotes Ezekiel 33, where in Ezekiel 33, God tells Ezekiel, if they reject and do not repent, I am holding you responsible, Ezekiel. To which Ezekiel goes, hamana, hamana, hamana. And Ezekiel preaches some of the greatest sermons of all time ever. Because God says, I'm gonna hold you responsible. So Ezekiel just lets it all hang out there. Paul says the same thing. I'm gonna be like Ezekiel. I have preached, I have proclaimed, I have promised. I have given you the truth of the gospel and your blood is on your heads, not on mine, Paul says. So not exactly the most comforting pastoral message ever from Paul, but yet, that's what's going on there. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then seriously, epic burn here from the Apostle Paul. Kind of love this, verse seven. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. A uh, worshiper of God, this is a technical term, it's sabomene. Sabomene in Greek means a Gentile God-fearer, a Gentile who is seeking after the God of Israel. Lydia in Acts 16 was sabomene. The centurion that Peter baptized was sabomene, a Gentile God-fearer seeking after the God of Israel through Hebrew scriptures. It's a very specific term. This guy, Titius Justus, was a God-fearer a worshiper of God, his house was <laughs> next door to the synagogue. I don't know if you've been to any ancient synagogues. They're not soundproof. Neither is anybody's house. So Paul just goes, oh, you don't want to hear this? Okay, fine. As I was saying, the Christ is Jesus in your face. He's not going to pull any punch now. He's lost some of his gentility. Verse eight, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So we think that this guy named Titius Justus is probably also named Gaius. We'll read about him in 1 Corinthians. We'll read about him in Romans. And his influence probably turned into impacting this guy named Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. He believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So this is where you see again in Acts, the overlap and the close of the age of Israel and the burgeoning emergence of the age of the church. Verse nine, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, not a man from Macedonia, not some other one showing a vision of a closed door in Bithynia. No, this is Jesus himself speaks 
to Paul. Now, I love this. Because here's what you would expect Jesus to say to Paul. Paul, I'm so sorry, sugar. It's been hard, hadn't it? Okay, pumpkin, go get a snack. Come back and we'll talk. Nope. 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 It's not what we get. Do not be afraid. Me fobu, the most common command in all of Scripture. Don't be afraid. Why does Jesus tell Paul not to be afraid? Because he was afraid. Hard-charging, triumphal entry, Paul, the apostle. He's worried that he's about to get beat down all over again, and he's just about had enough. Now, it's interesting that Jesus comes, and it's a very brief mention. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. What's your job, Paul? Preach. This isn't about you. This is about me and what I am doing, doing to redeem a fallen species. Go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. Does that remind you of anything? Do you remember the 12, actually the 11 disciples that are gathered at the very end of the gospel of Matthew and Jesus gives them the great commission? Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Well, Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, wasn't there for that time. So Jesus comes to him separately and says, I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in the city who are my people. But he uses a different word. It's marvelous. It's fascinating. In the book of Titus, Paul writes to the people of Crete and says that God is in Christ creating for himself a peculiar priestly people. It's this exact same word. Jesus tells Paul, hey, I don't just have a, a clump of humanity. I have a peculiar priestly people in the city you don't know anything about. I know who they are. They may not even know who they are yet, but I got this, Paul. I've got this. Well, apparently it's effective. And he stayed a year and six months. 18 months, Paul ends up staying in Corinth, teaching the word of God among them. Now, what's interesting is what happened is Paul was working, 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 and then Silas and Timothy come back and they bring two things. They bring great news. Hey, Paul, the churches are flourishing. They've stuck. They've taken root. They're growing. They're baptizing all kinds of people. It's happening. In spite of your absence, Jesus is getting it done. Not only that, they brought a gracious gift. They brought financial support. He'll write in Philippians, hey, you gave me a gift once and again. In the first few weeks of the existence of the church of Philippi, they sent money to support Paul's ministry. And so by the time that gift makes it to Corinth via Silas and Timothy, Paul is able to stop making the finest Corinthian letter. He puts that aside, and now he's ministering and preaching and proclaiming every single day. And people are hearing it, and they are becoming baptized. Did you see? It was happening through the involvement and the engagement of others. And yes, Jesus comes and speaks to him and says, hey, don't be afraid. I've got people. I've got a peculiar priestly people in the city. I'm getting it done, just like I did up in Macedonia, just like I always have and always will. Paul, your job, I don't need you. Your job is to keep preaching and about to speak about the coming of the Christ. So Paul does. Verse um, 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, verse 12 to 17, it's kind of some boring stuff, but you need to know, Acts 18, 12 through 17 is some of the most important text in all of your Bible as far as legitimizing the authenticity and the veracity of your Bible. There's a whole lot of mystery for a really long time about when was Paul, what was Paul, where was Paul, when did all this happen? Gallio is one of the most fundamental 
tent spikes planted as far as timing goes that really defends the veracity of all the time markers of our Bible. Not that we need that, but it is a nice comfort and reassurance. Because of the mention of Gallio, we know pretty much all the rest of the timeline of the entire New Testament. So this is pretty cool. When Gallio was a proconsul of Achaia, that's the province where Corinth is located, we know who Gallio was. He was the brother of Roman philosopher Seneca. He's from Spain. Ultimately goes back to Rome because of poor health, and Nero has him killed, because that's just what Nero does on Thursdays. He just kills folks because he gets suspicious, and that's just what Nero did. Gallio was a proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul. Oh, wonderful, here we go. Same song, Fifth verse, it's happened in Philippi, it happened in Thessalonica. The Thessalonians actually traveled to Berea and tried to riot there. Here we go again. But Jesus had already told Paul, don't worry, nobody's gonna touch you. So they made an attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. This is an official governmental location. You can go there today and see it. It's amazing. Verse 13 saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, what did they mean? Did they mean, hey, these people, this guy, are trying to start up a new religion? Well, that's illegal in the Roman Empire. You can have any religion you want as long as it's already established. You don't get to start a new one. Or were they saying, hey, this guy's stirring up trouble, and he's doing things against our law, i.e. Torah and the law of Moses. This Roman governor, interestingly and conveniently, interprets the second one. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, let me just tell you, you got the greatest apologist, the greatest articulator of the faith ever, and he's not even permitted to speak. Jesus has got this. Gallio says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, it's not about Roman law, It's about your own internal proceedings. See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Now, what happens right there is fascinating and radical. When Jesus says, Paul, I've got this, Luke is not trying to convince us that Gallio is one of Jesus' guys. Oh, he's far from it. But he's going to create an infrastructure and an environment in which the gospel can now flourish. He's just sanctioned officially and legally across the Roman Empire that Christianity is an expression of Judaism. We know from the book of Romans chapter 2 that Christianity is completed Judaism. Paul says it very blatantly. To be a Jew, you have to be a Christian. It's not anti-Semitic, it's biblical. But what Gallio does is officially, legally, governmentally authorize and sanction Christianity as a state religion. Was that a good thing? In some ways. Was it a bad thing? In some ways. Because a lot of folks just assumed because of their color passport that they were Christians. That would never happen in our day and age. I'm just saying, yeah. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Get out of my sight. And they all seized Sosthenes. Who was they all? Just all of the people that had gathered around in the Agora, the big marketplace where the judgment seat was located. They all grabbed this guy named Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Well, that happened quickly because just a few verses earlier was a guy named Crispus. But apparently Christmas comes to faith. He's no longer able to rule the synagogue. So now Sosthenes is on the job. Welcome to work, Sosthenes. They grabbed him and they beat him in front of the tribunal. I hate my job. 
But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Why is Luke add that little bit at the end? Luke wants us to understand, hey, make no mistake, Gallio is not a good guy. He's under the sovereign control and direction of a sovereign king. And he didn't care about human life. He wasn't on the side of Paul or anybody else. He was just wanting to be bothered less. What Jesus tells Paul is, Paul, I know your sorrows, and Jesus knows your sorrows. So what in the world are we to take away from all this? It's really fascinating. Acts chapter 17, we get this massive, long, long chapter. Paul is only in Athens less than two weeks, and we get an entire chapter about it. Paul is in Corinth for a year and a half. We get 17 verses. That's really fascinating. Luke doesn't give us a whole lot more information of what all happens for 18 months in Corinth. Other than we know that Paul has to write them four letters. But the indication is clear. Two Weeks in Athens, we get an entire chapter. A year and a half in Corinth, we get 17 verses. What's the point? It wasn't about Paul at all. It's about Jesus, and it's about what he is doing. See, the Gospels were all about the birth of the Christ. Acts was all about the beginnings of the church. And now God is going to get it done in Christ as he moves through the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. So let me give a few just portable principles that we can take with us on this. Number one. I'm going to say some things that you obviously all already know, and yet it's good to have them articulated audibly so that you can take them with you. Fatigue is not sin. Did you know that? Fatigue is not sin. I'm afraid all too often in our culture and context, because of the Protestant work ethic, we used to call it, we drive ourselves and we drive one another to accomplish, even in the midst of exhaustion, to just, you got to go do, you got to go do, you got to go do. Often is not the message that we hear from ourselves or we hear from the whispers of our enemy or just from the world around us that we believe are saying these things. The message is something like, just keep trying harder to be better. And then when you're not, just feel immense guilt and shame when you're not trying that hard and when you're not that much better. But that's not freedom. That's not why we've been saved. And please hear me, I am not advocating for lethargy or laziness or apathy. Fall far, far, far from it. Paul was exhausted. He was beat down, but he still focused on what he loved, the gospel, and seeing people step out of death into life. So I'm inviting you to be reminded and to remind yourself more and more and more of the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ. Please hear those verbs. He's done it in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. It's really good news. And so give grace to yourself. Explore why you're exhausted. There's a decent chance that you're running really hard for non-everlasting things. But Jesus's yoke is easy and his burden is light, Matthew chapter 11. If you're trying to carry the weight of the world, I promise you, you never will. And God has never asked you to. That's his job. Receive rest. Secondly, as we're talking about sorrow, goes like this. God tolerates what he hates to accomplish what he loves. It's actually not an original to me. That comes from Joni Erickson Tata, famous artist, writer, painter, speaker. She became a quadriplegic when she had a diving accident. And this is one of her most famous insights. God tolerates what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sorrow is sometimes the process God uses to remind us to recognize him. So don't waste the sorrow. 
We get frustrated when our expectations are not met. So allow God to reframe them. So much of what happens in good counseling and therapy is listening to all the data points and all the evidences and simply allowing the speaker to reframe the situation themselves. This is what God does in our sorrow. He invites us and exhorts us to reframe the circumstance, reframe the situation. Does anything actually, functionally change? No, but we do. And that makes all the difference in the world. We reframe our view of the world because of the truth of God's word, who he is, what he says, what he does. One of the most effective ways God uses his children is through seasons of difficulty. I know we don't want that, but that's what the reality is. The enemy wants to oppose God's plan by turning us in on ourselves, by making us lose contentment in God. And this is how evil continues to spread in the world. But God uses our weakness to make his strength manifest in our midst. In other words, God loves you so much that he will not prevent your discouragement. That is true. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed face down in my pillow or just standing out on the side of the road someplace and asking why, 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 and being reminded, I'm not here to prevent your discouragement. I'm here to use it. What are you doing? C.S. Lewis said this way, God whispers to us in joy and shouts to us in pain. When, not if, but when we struggle and when we suffer, we want the pain to simply stop and to go away. But we have the responsibility to be reminded, to explore what God may be teaching us. He loves us too much to leave us like we were when we were converted. He's always working in and for us. Our sorrow can and should be sanctifying. Paul concludes his second missionary journey after he leaves Corinth, and he's never the same again. You can see it when he gets back to Antioch, and when he starts his third missionary journey, he is a completely different apostle Paul. God worked through Paul's weakness. Third point goes like this. God loves people through God's people. (laughs) Probably sort of know that, but I want you to know that intimately and experientially. God loves people through God's people. Or more alliteratively, the balm for your burden is the body of Christ. To put it yet another way, the church is the primary means through which God brings about peace and joy and love to his children when they are sorrowful. It's genius, and therefore, it is not the way I would do it, (laughs) but it is the way that God does it. We hear it all the time in seasons of suffering, natural disasters, relational crises, financial issues, whatever it might be. Oh, this is so hard. This is, hurts really bad. Where is God? Why won't he do something? Well, we think too little of the gospel and too small about redemption. He has done it. He's brought about the redemption of a whole bunch of people who were far from God and who were running hard in the wrong direction, directly into darkness and death. Instead, they, all these people, have been raised to walk in newness of life to bring about his ministry of compassion and encouragement to fellow believers and those who were not yet come in. All these redeemed have banded together to worship, fellowship, and minister. And yes, hear me, hear me. God is certainly more than capable of whipping up a casserole and knocking on your door. He could do it, probably the best tuna casserole ever. But he doesn't. He gets so much more glory when his children who love him and therefore love one another, love one another. 
If you're a parent, you've ever heard any of your children actually caring for one another as siblings rather than driving scissors into the base of their skulls. It's a beautiful, astonishing thing. You think they're doing it. They're loving each other and not even in the room. And it doesn't last. That's okay. Enjoy the moment. It does happen from time to time. Jesus appeared to Paul in person on the road to Damascus, spent at least three years with him in the deserts of Arabia. But you know what? A few years later, Paul was out of gas, completely on fumes. You may have had an incredible experience that one time in the seventh grade at church camp. Awesome. Or that one time you were driving down the road and you heard that Friends of Friends Forever song by Michael W. Smith and you were like, mm! but that was 12 years ago or 30 years ago. The way God's going to nurse you and nurture you back to strength and vitality and joy are all these people occupying brown chairs in this room and other places. Jesus spoke directly to Paul only once while he was in Corinth, as far as we know. So far as that we have recorded in our scriptures, Paul gets six different visions from Jesus. And you know what? Six visions seems like it would be a lot to me. I would be so down for just one. Nope. Jesus says, that's not, that's not enough. What Paul needs is the body of Christ to minister to him and to tend to his very soul. It was the persistent presence of people, other people, for 18 months that nursed him back to emotional and spiritual and probably even physical health because of God's word. This is how they out there will know that we in here are Christ's. Not by how we vote or how we write epic political burns on Facebook and Twitter, or X, whatever you want to call it now. No, but by our love for one another. John 13, John 15, a well-reasoned concern for another's good. Jesus knows your sorrows. Lastly, just as Paul said, he said the Christ is Jesus. I'm going to say Jesus is the Christ. He's the one. He's the one God has promised. He's the one God has provided the only way you and I will ever emerge from these seasons of sorrow is to see Jesus and to feel about his people the way that he feels about his people. Yes, we fix our eyes on Jesus, to gaze at his glory, to have our expectations reframed. Now, we started off this morning in Isaiah 53, talking about a man of sorrows. And that passage continues on to tell us what this Messiah has done. Isaiah 53, verse four. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus knows those sorrows because he became them. He carried them. And in the mind of God, they were taken to the cross. So reframe those expectations. It's not to never have sorrows. It's to understand and recognize what they are for and how God is potentially using them. This is our future history. This is where we're actually from. Isaiah continues in Isaiah 51, verse 11. He says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That is our future history. That's where we're from. That's what's coming for us. And so we get the opportunity to encourage ourselves and one another until that becomes literal reality. So let us not forsake the assembly, as Hebrews 10 says, and let us love the Lord together. This is a springboard for an imperfect church and a perfect gospel. Looking forward to spending some time in 1 Corinthians with you all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be about 
your word, to walk through your scripture as you're walking through our souls. So Father, I pray in a very real sense, if there's someone here who does not know you, I pray that you will move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, that they will believe that Jesus is the Christ. They will understand, they will agree, they will trust, they will be persuaded that he is the answer and they will seize hold of the gospel. For the rest of us, Father, who have perhaps lost our interest, our affection, our attention for the church, would you rekindle anew that this is how you love us, is through your people, and we'd be energized all over again. And Father, for those who are hurting because of the loss of loved ones, of relational ills and financial errors and all kinds of crises in their lives, God, would you comfort them? That You know their sorrows. Would you give them wisdom to reframe their circumstance, to turn your eye, their eyes upon you and to your people? Father, thanks for loving us. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.